Jesus' name, amen. All right, as you are in Hebrews 12, Marshall Siegel, writing for Desiring God, he tells the story of George Matheson. George grew up and lived in Scotland in the mid-1800s. George began to lose his sight in his teenage years, and then by the age of 21, he was completely blind. He was engaged to be married, but when the love of his life found out that he was going to be blind by the age of 21, she left him. Matheson would live the rest of his life single, unable to see, and he was cared for by his older sister. She became everything for him for the next 20 years. He 100% depended on her for everything. He, she was his eyes. But after 20 years of being his caretaker, his sister had the opportunity to get married. And so he was going to lose his sight and his companion again. And on the night of her wedding, he wrote these lines, which became a hymn that he's probably most known for today. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean's depth its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I chase the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Siegel writes, when the rain of all that he lost threatened to drown the love he'd known and he might have wondered if God had utterly abandoned him. Matheson instead wrapped his fingers all the tighter around the promises of heaven. He ran for the tearless wedding to come, his blind eyes filled with joy, pressed into the tension that so many of us feel in suffering. Does our Father in heaven really love us? I remember sitting on a, a beach with Jennifer in August of 2014, our family going through some difficult seasons, wondering about our father's provision and saying to her, I know my father is love, but it doesn't feel like he loves us right now. If you've lived long enough, you've been kicked in the teeth enough by life in this world, you have reached the same point multiple times. Maybe even that's where you're at today. And what this passage in Hebrews is going to tell us, it's not a hallmark card of ooey gooey warm fuzzies that will just take all the pain away it's more like a hammer some wood nails and instructions on how to build a shelter it's hard truth but if this truth settles deep inside your heart and mind you can build a shelter that you can retreat to as often as you need or want and find warmth and courage to get up and walk out another day of life on this ball of dirt so let's read the passage, and then let's see what the Spirit of God has for us today, beginning in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and give up. In struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? 
But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One thing I love most about expository preaching, which is simply we, we don't decide ahead of time what topic we want to present and find passages to, to support our topic. We just let this, the scripture speak. What does the Bible say? We want to understand it and apply it to our lives. One thing I love about it is the word driving how God speaks to us. It's not us just spitballing ideas against the wall. And therefore, we don't really know all that God will say to us until we get to that passage for that week. We might have preconceived ideas because we've read it and we've done some study ahead of time, but we don't really know until we dig into the text. And so I knew I had this passage and I knew what I thought this passage was about. But as I dug in, I was amazed at how I hadn't fully grasped in the past the full depth and breadth of this passage. And maybe I'm talking to a bunch of Hebrews 12 experts, but if you're like me, I've assumed that this was simply about God's discipline of his kids when they continue in deliberate, unrepentant sin. So this passage didn't apply to all of God's kids all the time because we weren't always pursuing sin deliberately, unrepentantly. This was for those times, and God comes in with the, the belt or the paddle or whatever you want to picture in your mind as God's discipline. But what we understand as we go through this, and the tone was more about angry punishment, what this passage is actually saying is something quite different. So let's dig in and, and get into it. The first thing is notice the reality of suffering in a sin-cursed world. The reality of suffering in a sin-cursed world. It's alluded to in verses 3 and 4. They were to consider Jesus who endured hostility from sinners. He suffered at the hand of sinners and endured with joy the cross that before him. We looked at that last week. Verse 4, in their struggle against sin, he says, they haven't gotten to the point of shedding their blood. It's so serious, martyrdom is on the table, but they haven't gotten there yet. You, you, you haven't been killed in your suffering yet. You're still alive. We know from chapter 10, when he was last encouraging them to endure through suffering, he mentioned some of what they endured. Verses 32 through 34, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, so the salvation, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, like if you were a ULM fan at the LSU game yesterday. And other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Later in chapter 13, he'll allude to this again. Verse 3, remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. So some of their companions were in prison, some were being mistreated, and he wanted them to not forget those brothers and sisters. But they hadn't gotten to the point of shedding their blood and dying as martyrs. But do notice the writer equates the persecution and potential persecution as struggling against sin. And in the context of this section, later he says in verse 7, endure suffering as discipline. 
So one of the big questions about this passage is, what kind of suffering is he referring to that we have to endure as discipline from God? What kind of struggling against sin? For them, it's a struggle related to hostility from those who have or would persecute them. And their struggle against sin was, will we endure? Will we continue to believe? Or will we walk away from Jesus, which would be the sin of unbelief? They no longer believe Jesus is worth the struggle and the suffering. Let's go back to where it seems safer. So is this the only kind of suffering and struggling with sin that we can equate with the discipline of our Father in heaven? Persecution, potential persecution. But if we suffer because we choose to sin, that's not what this passage is about. Or if we suffer because of a natural disaster or an unexpected or unexplained illness, something seemingly out of our control, if we suffer then, that's not to be understood as discipline from our Father. Because that is the reality of our suffering, right? We suffer more because we live in a world with suffering. We suffer more because we do sin and we suffer the consequences of our sinful choices. We suffer more in these ways than because we are facing persecution as Christians. Is that how we should understand this passage? Ultimately, what is the source of suffering in the world? We know from Genesis 3, it's sin. Which doesn't mean every time we suffer, it's because we sinned and we're suffering the direct consequences of that sin. But it does mean God did not create a world filled with suffering. We know, you've been well-versed in this, you've been with us for a while, Sin entered creation, creation has suffered, death, chaos, disease, natural disasters, broken relationships, broken families, broken marriages, abortion, abandonment, substance abuse, addictions, racism, oppression, greed, sexual abuse, misogyny, cancer, COVID, diabetes, heart disease, even my stupid patellar tendonitis in my knee that will not quit hurting is ultimately because sin has entered into creation. And on and on we could go. All suffering ultimately is because of sin. This is not what God created the world to be or experience. Sin entered creation and has cursed all of creation. There's no part of creation that's not affected by the curse of sin, which was also part of God's sovereign plan because then he could send his son to redeem creation and we would know God in a way we would not know apart from sin entering creation and us seeing our Father in heaven as our Redeemer. Through his son. Therefore, in the same way we understand Romans 8:28, we know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God is purposefully working in all things, good and bad, at work for our good, his children. So also when we suffer, regardless of the cause, we can say we are not just receiving suffering, but we're also receiving our Father's loving discipline. Now, it it might not be easy to hear that, and we might even bristle at that, partly because we have a skewed view of the discipline of a father. We often view the discipline of a father commingled with anger and wrath. Now, I have no idea why we would make that association, no clue why we would do that, but we do because of the brokenness of our dads and us who are dads and moms. You're not off the hook, moms. 
when we only see discipline and anger together, then when we hear our Father in Heaven is disciplining us, then we might see anger as a part of that. He is coming in with the switch, the paddle, the belt, or whatever. And so it doesn't feel not it doesn't feel like love, it feels like angry punishment. And so now it feels like we're suffering because our father's mad at us because we've messed up. We've failed. We have sinned. We haven't had enough faith. We haven't been good enough. And so we're suffering in some way because we're being punished and beat down by our angry dad who's mad at us for messing up. And let's, let's be honest this morning. Let's ask ourselves this question. Search our hearts. How do you respond when you enter into suffering? Is your immediate default, what have I done to deserve this? Is this my fault in some kind of way? Now, sometimes that might be part of it because we do sin and suffer the consequences of our sin. Our Father allows that. Or sometimes do we respond to our suffering as, I think I'm innocent. I don't think I've done anything to warrant this. But someone or something evil is obviously against me. Which also could be a part of it. Christians do really suffer persecution. People are evil and do evil things. Governments, corporations, they all do evil, really evil things. Well, maybe I'm just suffering. This is our default. Maybe I'm just suffering because I'm caught up in this world filled with sin, chaos, and evil. There's really no rhyme or reason. I just caught a stray bullet from a drive-by shooting. And, but now God will help me. But he's not really in control of everything. This passage is not about our Father in anger punishing us through suffering. That's one way we misunderstand and misapply this passage. But we also mess up when we only equate discipline with punishment. Certainly punishment can be a part of discipline, but discipline is also just training, equipping, strengthening. In fact, verse 11, you see this. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it the goal is not to punish and break down the goal is to train and equip and volleyball will have sometimes in practice an, an emphasis on the girls being aggressive to keep or the boys being aggressive to keep the ball off the ground don't let the ball hit the ground if the ball hits the ground there better be a body on the ground if it's not a body on the ground we're running wind sprints at the end of practice We've got to inject some consequences to not being aggressive right but sometimes we run wind sprints just to get in better shape to be quicker, to train your muscles to be a better volleyball player. That's discipline too. There's a discipline of punishment. There's a discipline of training and equipping, making stronger. The suffering we experience as the discipline of our Father can feel like punishment if He's just allowing us to suffer the natural consequences of our sinful and foolish choices. All suffering can feel like punishment because suffering is painful and so is punishment. Well, we know it's not punishment in the sense of God's condemnation or wrath or anger because we know we've been spared condemnation and wrath because of Jesus. We rest in him. We stand in him. God's wrath and condemnation are never poured out on his kids. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 5, 24, truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. You have passed from death to life. That's already settled. 
If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will not stand before your Father on the final day of judgment and wonder if your future, heaven or hell, I don't know, I don't know. That's settled already. You're, you're standing before your Father in heaven is for rewards for the good that Jesus has done through you. 1 Corinthians 3 type judgment. Accountability. If we equate punishment with wrath and anger, Know that this is not the kind of punishment our Father in Heaven pours out on His kids. Our Father in Heaven never, ever flies off the handle. He's never out of control. He never responds in anger to us because He's embarrassed by our behavior in the grocery store or because He's being selfish with His time. He never responds in anger because we break something and now it's going to cost time and money to fix He never responds in anger to us because he's afraid that he's failed as our father. Those are how, that's how we discipline. That's not him. What we have in this passage and what I want to focus on for the rest of our time is that when we suffer, for whatever reason, it is our father's love at work to train us and grow our faith in him. That's his discipline. None of that takes away the pain. But as one author put it, If you don't understand justification by faith, it makes every trial of suffering a double trial because not only are you enduring the suffering, but you're having to wonder, does God hate me? Brother and sister, this passage boldly declares your father is at work in your suffering to love you, to love you well, never to hate you or punish you in his wrath, but to love you and actually grow your faith in him. So back to the passage. As you consider Jesus and how he suffered and finished his race, keep your eyes on him. Endure what you have to endure with joy. We saw that. So you won't grow weary and give up. That's verse 3. Because you haven't gotten to the place where you've had to die for this. Verse 4. Verse 5. You have forgotten some important truths from the Old Testament. And he's quoting Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. Where he says, my son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. This truth is not a new truth they have never heard, but it is a truth, he says, you have forgotten. The Lord does discipline, but it's not haphazard. In fact, it's for only one group of people. Those he loves. Those he loves. So secondly, when we suffer, we suffer as his kids who are loved. Verse 7. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. And you could also say daughters. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We are being treated as children, not enemies. And this is supposed to comfort us in our suffering. Think of how kind and gracious our father is in our suffering. If our suffering is only It's our fault, the consequences of our sins. Well, we don't suffer all the consequences of our sins that we could suffer. Remember Genesis 2 and 3, God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will die. With each and every sin we commit, it deserves death, and we could rightly be punished by death in light of God's holiness and righteousness. And so while while some of our suffering can be attributed in part to the consequences of our foolish and sinful choices, we still don't get all we deserve. No one does. The entire human population would be dead in a day if we got what we deserved. 
In fact, the reason there are 7 billion still, uh, people still here is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Why does the Lord delay his return and final judgment? Because he desires more worshipers for himself. More people to come to repentance. It's an act of love to his kids and those who would be his kids that we don't suffer all the consequences of our foolish and sinful choices every time we sin. Us, we are here and left here and not killed every time we sin so that we would have the opportunity to repent and continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those who haven't heard. Those who aren't his kids, they're still here. They're not crushed by God's punishment every time they sin so that they would have more time to repent and hear the good news of Jesus and become part of the family. Now, when we suffer at the hands of evil, persecution or injustice, which does happen, when we suffer then because we are caught up in a sinful, sin-cursed world filled with sickness, disease, natural disasters, car accidents, where tragedies happen, it's not just evil at work. It's not chaos in control Just as the ultimate reason for all suffering is sin and creation, so also for us Christians, the ultimate purpose of our suffering is our our Father's love training us in righteousness and growing our faith and trust in Him. So does that mean that God is the agent behind the evil we have to endure? Would that then, if that were true, then make God evil? When Satan came before the Lord in Job 1 and 2, And God, not Satan, God suggested that Job be examined for his great faith. And Satan says, well, it's only because he's only righteous and faithful because you protect him and you bless him. And God says, okay, let's put him under the microscope. Let's put him in the lab and find out if that's true. You can test him, but you can't kill him. And in one day, Job loses everything in a day. All of his wealth, all of his kids, gone. Satan did the evil, but God ordained, allowed, permitted Satan to do that, so is God ultimately responsible, and therefore does that make God evil? When Jesus told Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, look out, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Satan asked, he had to ask, because he's not God, he's not sovereign. Jesus said yes, Because Jesus knew about Peter the same thing God knew about Job, Peter would not be destroyed by this sifting, but would in fact turn back and be strong enough to strengthen his brothers. Jesus was not evil in this. In fact, he was loving because he knew what Peter needed to walk through. And not only did Peter need that for his own growth and maturity, but so would the rest of the church for the next 2,000 years who would face similar temptations to walk away from Jesus. So in purposing and designing and ordaining our sufferings, God is not evil. We know that's true from other clear passages. James 1.13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But it doesn't mean it's an easy truth to reconcile. It's a hard truth to reconcile with our feeble human brains. And so the typical human posturing has been to either strive to disprove his existence or to say, well, God's not really good after all, or say things like, well, he does exist, but obviously he's not sovereign and really in control of everything. There's a limit to his power. 
He kind of co-rules with us in our free will. We're not really sure who's in charge of, of all of this. Sometimes God, sometimes us. But we seem to be as much in charge as he does. We say God doesn't exist. God's not good. God's not powerful. I don't know about you, but none of those options are really comforting to me. Especially when we're suffering. None of those feel very loving. The passage is declaring along with the rest of Scripture, when we suffer, the ultimate reason isn't our sins, our foolishness, or even evil or chaos. The ultimate reason is our Father is at work in us. Even our suffering with His love for our good and growth and maturity. So we will know Him more and know His love more and trust Him more. He's it's a mystery. Why this and not that? Why now and not then? Why is it this hard and not that hard? Why, why us and not someone else? Why them and not me? There's a mystery to all that. We're not God. Who, who are we to be so arrogant to think that we can figure out the mysterious ways in which God is at work to accomplish 10 trillion purposes? Just last week we saw in Hebrews 12 too. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus know about all of that? The cross, the suffering, the shame. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did among you. Uh, through him, just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. Sinful people committed a sinful act. They crucified an innocent man. Injustice. It's not right. It shouldn't have happened. But it was delivered. He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. It was God's plan. It had to happen. A few chapters later, Acts 4. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentile and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Herod, sinner, sinful thing, Pontius Pilate, they will be held accountable for things. All the people who yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. They will be held accountable for rejecting their Messiah, which was what God's hand and will had predestined to take place. It wasn't just evil and sin at work. Behind it all, the ultimate purpose was God and his work, even in offering his own son. And this is an act of his love. Not only love for his son, but love for us. John 3, 16, for God loved the world in this way. How did God love the world? He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In what way did God love the world? He loved the world by giving his son to perish so we would not have to perish if we would believe in him. And this is true in all of our suffering. It's not just evil running wild. It's not just chaos. It's our Father's sovereign, loving work at at work for us, for our good, as a demonstration of his love. So in our suffering, therefore, we trust our Father and his loving and good work. That's the third thing. In our suffering, we trust our Father and His loving and good work. Notice the comparison the author makes, verse 9. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father's spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We get this from human relationships when a mother or father disciplines us imperfectly and they only discipline us for a short time because they eventually grow up and leave, right? Yeah. But their aim is ultimately to teach us right from wrong. Wrong choices bring negative consequences. Good choices bring blessing and reward. This is true and generally true in all of life because this is how God's designed the world to work. Not always true. Sometimes bad people or bad choices are temporarily rewarded. Sometimes good choices are temporarily not rewarded. But generally this is true. This is the book of Proverbs. Work hard, treat people well, don't be a fool. Generally life goes well. We understand this from our parents and our homes and we respected them for, for, for teaching us good choices, bad choices, consequences, boundaries. Don't go too far. Don't touch the stove. Don't run in the street. And we followed their leadership as kids. We knew they loved us even though they weren't perfect. They were at work for our, for our good and for us. But in a much, much, shouldn't we submit even more to the Father? In a much greater way, our Father in heaven and all of the suffering we experience, even the suffering at the hands of imperfect parents, in all of our suffering, he is at work for our good. In all of our lives, for all of our lives. The discipline of parents end at 18, 19, 20, 25, whenever. God's at work, our Father's at work until we die to discipline us and train us. And we know because our Father in heaven is the one true, most high, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good God who created all things, sustains things, rules over everything. We know he's going to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Verse 10, for us to share in his holiness. Verse 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, his love and good work in us. We share in his holiness, the holiness of God, the otherness of God. No one is like him. So let me ask you, who else in all of creation could endure the worst suffering this world has to offer and see it as loving discipline from our Father in heaven and love him even more for it? Who but his people? We're the only ones. We don't have to create other belief systems like other religions have created to explain suffering in this world. We see it all from the hand of our Father in heaven who loves us and is for us. And it makes us love him even more. If there's anyone I want to be in charge, it's him. Not me or my choices, not sin, evil, chaos, but him. So we share in his holiness, his otherness. We get it we see him at work we understand not everything because we're not God but we understand enough to love him and trust him secondly he accomplishes his peaceful fruit of righteousness it's not him trying to destroy us he's not trying to destroy his children in our suffering he's not out to wipe us off the face of the earth he's not out to destroy our faith the work he's trying to accomplish is peaceful fruit of righteousness it's peaceful it's orderly it's at one with him righteousness to make us more like jesus just like in romans 8 28 which is followed by verse 29 for those he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters he is at work in all things for our good to make us more like 
Jesus. And therefore, we submit even more to the Father's spirits and live. We trust him and we follow his leadership. Notice all the descriptors of our Father and us in this passage. We are being loved. We are not illegitimate, but legitimate sons and daughters. We live. We share in his holiness. We are seeing the peaceful fruits of righteousness show up in us. This is all intended to give us life and love and hope and joy and holiness and righteousness. To go through suffering and see it as our Father sees it and trust Him. To be loved by Him. To allow this work to accomplish His purposes. Does this make suffering less hard and painful? No. The passage says it's painful. It hurts. And it's hard. And honestly, when we're walking through suffering or we're we're trying to encourage someone who is suffering, it can feel a little simple and trite just to say, well, you know, God's at work. He loves you. This is ultimately for your good. Those truths are still true, and they need to be the foundation for all the counsel that we give. And when you're not suffering, we should work to drive those truths even deeper into our hearts and minds. But when we enter the crucible or someone we know is entering the time of trial and testing and and we know and, 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 and we love them and, and we're there with them, we certainly shouldn't be so quick with truth that we fail to weep with those who weep. Or as Job's friends did so well, sat in silence for seven days to grieve with their friend. And so don't hear all of these words while you're suffering and feel like it's unloving from your father. That's not what he intends. He's not trying to wrap a nice little truth bow on your suffering and pat you on the back and send you back in the game. And you'll be fine. But he also doesn't desire for you to suffer and not feel like he's not in charge of this. That he's not at work. That he's not loving. Or that he's distant. Or that you're all alone. Or that he's less than sovereign or powerful. No, the purpose of knowing this truth while we endure painful suffering is the next two verses. Verse 12 and 13. Therefore, in light of all of this, strengthen your tired hands and weaken knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead strength healing endurance through the suffering we can endure we can walk through it we don't have to redefine God we can trust who he actually is and by his grace with his help this is enough for today. And when the sun sets and we go to sleep, as much as we can sleep, he is at work when we are not. And when the sun rises and our father has not grown tired of working all night, because he doesn't grow tired, and his mercies are not exhausted by us, in fact, his mercies are new every morning. And what we need on that day, he will graciously, generously provide because we are his kids and he loves us. Even when he has to discipline, train, teach us lessons that we cannot learn apart from suffering that we are currently walking through. He will not ultimately destroy us or destroy our faith, but he will in fact make it stronger. And so, dear suffering brother and sister, may this indeed strengthen your tired hands. 
and weaken these. May this indeed make straight paths of truth for you to stay on and walk on. May this indeed heal what is lame. That is our prayer for this passage today. And it's just enough for today. I can tell you it's just enough for today. For when tomorrow comes and the pain comes again, he will be enough for you tomorrow. If you're in so much pain, you can't remind yourself. Know that we are here as your family. We are here as your church to remind you again, to help hold you up, to weep and help you trust that your father loves you. He has not left you, abandoned you, or forsaken you. He is right here in the middle of all of it at work for your good and for your joy and for you to live. If you're here and you don't know this God as your father in heaven, you feel like an illegitimate son or daughter because you've never trusted in Jesus, then today you can do that. And today can be the day of your salvation. Father, thank you so much for your good, strong, hard work. Thank you that it is not suffering that is in, that is in charge. It is not chaos. It is not sin. It is not evil. And it is not us. Thank you for that. That it is our all-wise, all-good, all-loving Father in heaven. So even when life is its worst, we don't have to despair. We don't have to give up. We don't have to quit. We can press into you even more and find that you are our rock. You are secure. You are love. And this has not caught you off guard. So I pray for those who need this the most today, that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God and drive it even deeper into their hearts and minds and, and accomplish what verses 12 and 13 want to accomplish. Strength, healing, life, hope. And for those who aren't suffering, may this season of not suffering not be a season to become complacent but a season to learn and lean into even more who you are so that when the suffering comes, that will come, they are trained and equipped and ready. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as Father, today may they see the beauty of Jesus who died for their sins and rose from the dead to give us life and may they trust in Jesus as they turn from their sins. Do all these things because you are a good, good dad. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.